are you a good person? You hope so. This is an important question. Okay, so I hope so. So do you know anyone who's a, who's a bad person? You probably know someone that's bad. Are they in this room? No? There's no bad people in this room? None? You don't know? Are all good? Oh, that's good. Do you like surround yourself with good people? You do? Raise your hand uh, in this room if you're a bad person. Wait a minute. I thought you said you were a good person. Oh, oh, she hopes so. Raise your hand if you typically think of yourself as a good person. The hands aren't as quite as high on that one. They're like, technically. <laughs> and if I were to ask you what makes you a good person, we as humans have a really great technique we use, which is we use the same thing that you use when you take like a chemistry class and you've got the one really nerdy kid in class and you just want to like cut his Achilles tendon because he's ruining it for everyone else because he got like a 97 on the test and the next person got like an 84 and you got a 79, which if you graded on the curve and you got rid of smarty pants McGee, you'd have an A at the point, but you don't because of that guy. And, and so I think sometimes if, like, if we're honest with ourselves, I think the number one way that we do morality or we do goodness as a people is we, we think that if there is some sort of divine judge or if there is some sort of right and wrong, that we, we love scales, we love fluidity of things in our culture. And one of the things that we think is, um, is kind of like in a scalar system is whether or not you're a good person. And so it, it's really common when you ask someone if you're a good person for them to fudge and to he and to ha and to, bless you, and to, um, and I love Laura, Laura Lai, Laura Lai, Laura Lai, Laura Lai, okay, um, is you, there's so many um, helpful kind of like adverbs given into it or adjectives or um, just kind of caveats. Well, I would like to think so. Well, I hope so. Well, I, and yet when it comes down to it, the, the, the central theme of scripture is that Jesus, who was God from all eternity past, God the Father made all of us, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect community and then they looked down at the world and they said, let us make man in our image. And so you and I were created as part of humanity to reflect the goodness of who he is and to be in a proper relationship with him. But God actually made us not so that we would have fun. We weren't made so that we would explore and, and see the ends of the earth and accumulate all this wealth and everything. We were actually made to experience a higher pleasure. Um, as uh, I love that there's a, a book um, by C.S. Lewis, and it's called The Screwtape Letters, and it's where these two demons are talking to each other. It's a fictional story, but it's a really interesting interplay that happens, and as these two demons are talking to each other, they're talking about who God is, and one of the demons says to the other demon, that God up there, he's a hedonist at heart, because humans can, underneath God's perfect provision, hang out and eat and drink and, and play and work and do all these things, and they can enjoy themselves all day long, and God doesn't mind a bit. In, in fact, he seems to enjoy it. God didn't make us so that we wouldn't have any joy or meaning or purpose or value in our life. But when sin entered into the picture, God said, I've got this world for you. It's better than you could ever imagine. Mankind, thinking about the pleasures outside of God's will, the supposed pleasure that wasn't actually there, Adam and Eve, our father's 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 father, rebelled against God and said, I think if we got out of this trap of thinking that there's something outside of the sun, this is Adam and Eve's sin. 
They said, what if we were allowed to explore all the pleasure we possibly could under the sun? What if we stopped appealing to the fact that there's a God who's a creator, who identifies us, who gives us meaning and purpose and value and all these? What if we got rid of that old archaic system? And this is what Satan tempts them with. What Satan tempts them with is if you submit yourself to God and inside of submitting yourself to God, God says there's things that you shouldn't do. And Satan says, why do you think? Why would you surrender certain things that God says don't do? Wouldn't, wouldn't you be so much freer if you could do anything you wanted to do? And this, this whet the appetite of, the, of mankind to say, well, God says, here's all the things that bring pleasure and joy and life and goodness and, and everything that's beautiful and wonderful is over here. But I don't like that you told me that I can't do these things over here. So Satan takes all of the crap of the world, puts a bow on it, and gives it to Adam and Eve and says, wouldn't you like the option to do this as well? But in that box, in that tied up bow, is death and evil and brokenness. And you're right. Sometimes we think to ourselves, well, it's good that we at least have the option for genocide and the option for murder and the option for betrayal and the option for bullying and the option for death. It's good that we have that option. It almost feels like part of the freedom of who we are. But God's original design was that we would experience complete and total joy and pleasure inside of this system and that death and sin and brokenness wouldn't even be a part of it. But God gave mankind in our free will the option to say, I'd like these categories, please. I'd like at least the option to do these things. And so in rebellion against God, those became part of the human condition. And instead of that it being separated, that all the junk was over here and all the pleasure was over here, it all, almost like a chicken pot pie, just got kind of mixed together. And so now we can have love, but it's broken love. Now we can, we can have joy, but, but it seems in a lot of cases to be a feeling of like temporary joy. We can have happiness, but it's scarred by the brokenness of this world. You can have health, but you're all going to die. Like there's only one certainty in life, and that is from the beginning of this chapel to now, you are about 30 minutes closer to your death. And you don't want to think about it because it's part of the way that we make our life livable is we have to kind of shut off the part of our brain that recognizes that we're all moving in the same direction. We're all moving towards death at all, at all, at all points. And every breath you take is one less that you're going to have at the end of your life. And so when it got mixed in, the pleasures that we see and the brokenness that we experience just kind of all become one. And so when you ask someone the question, are you a good person, what we're really saying, we judge anything by its ability to, to carry out what is it, it was originally created for, right? You're all sitting on a good chair. Do you know how I know that? Because you're sitting on a chair. <laughs> you judge a chair's chairness, how good a chair is, by its ability to fulfill one primary function. Can you sit on it, right? If you put a chair at the base of a tree and tell it to climb, that, tree, that chair is a bad climber, but it's still a good chair because chairs weren't made to, made to climb trees. Chairs were made to sit in. Likewise, if you have a spike and you call it a chair and you tell someone to sit on it, that's a bad chair because it hurts and it's painful. If I gave you a chair made out of jello, it would be a neat chair, but it would be a bad chair. So if anything, and, and, and we recognize this because of whoever made it is the one who gets to tell you what it's for. So the guy who made the podium says this podium is meant to hold junk. Is this a good podium? Yes, because it's holding junk, right? If this podium, every time you put something on it, it went, I can't do it. It'd be a bad podium. 
because it's not doing what the creator made it for. The, the word is Hamilton. Someone wrote their name Hamilton on this. I wonder if Hamilton built this podium. Alexander Hamilton. All I know is all I can think of is every Hamilton song right now. It's going to be difficult to move on. But, so, the question, you, it, it becomes an absolutely ridiculous question if you think that you are the product of random chance, that you've created an illusion in your head. If you don't believe that God created you and you don't believe in the gospel of Jesus and all those things, if you believe you're just a product of space dust running into other space dust, which accidentally, bio, biogenetically created who you are, for you to think you've got purpose in your life is remarkably asinine. It just doesn't make sense. Because purpose is derived from the creator's intent. We know that chairs are good because when people design chair and make chair, if chair be chair, chair has to have chairness. Chair has chairness when chair does chair things. What's a human for? You can't start by saying, what's my purpose? You have to start by saying, well, anything's purpose is derived from its creator. So you have to look up. You have to look up if you want purpose. And if you think there is nothing up, and this world is all that there is, then you're not allowed to talk about purpose. Purpose is, it's an illusion. It's, it's, it's diluted. It's a diluted idea. All you are is a grown-up germ, and to think that any kind of microparticle has purpose, right? Some sort of transcendent, my life means this. Of course it means nothing. If there is a creator, your life has meaning. If there isn't, then it doesn't. If there is a creator, then there's such thing as good and bad, and if there isn't, then there isn't. If there is a creator, there's such thing as identity and value. And without a creator, there isn't. And so the question that we're asking last night coming into this morning is, where do you find your identity? Who are you at all times? Who are you at your most basic? And, and the gospel of Jesus Christ says this, the answer that every Christian should have is exactly the same. The answer that every Christian who has submitted their life to God should have about who are you at your core? Who are you everywhere you go? Who are you in your unchanging, just so ego of who you are? The answer is always the same. I, Chris Hilkin, am sometimes, depending on where I am, I am a father, I am a husband, I am a pastor, I am all those things. But the one thing about me that never changes, and hasn't changed since the moment I surrender my life to Jesus, and it will not change 45 trillion years from now when I'm in his kingdom forever, I have become a child of God. That is my identity. I am a child of God who might be a fan of certain sports teams. I might enjoy certain activities. I might have a certain number of kids. I might be married to a certain person. Those are all sub-identities because my main one is this. I am a child of God. You can't change that, right? Could I ever change being a husband? It's happened to me, actually. Anything else you find your identity in is like, is like pitching a tent on the beach in low tide. It's, it's going to go away. It makes no sense. It's a dumb thing to invest in. No one's like, is that a chandelier? I'd like to put that in my tent at the beach, please. No, because it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go. I'm a father, and I'm a proud father of five kids. Can that ever be taken away from me? For sure. I, I like to play basketball. Can that be taken away from me? Yes. I like, I'm a pastor of a church that I love. Is it, can that be taken away from me? Yeah, in a heartbeat. You see, but here's what we've done. We started putting our identity in temporary things, and then we found in the capriciousness of this world, we just lose those things, and then we don't know who we are. You're, you are Mag M Margaret's boyfriend. Like, don't you love that identity? The problem is, Margaret's now moved on to Johnny, because Johnny's the stuff. And now you're alone, and you don't know who you are. And this is a really easy, contemplatively, this is a really easy thing to laugh about, 
But what's really sad is it's probably the, the identity that a lot of people in here have chosen. Not necessarily Margaret and Johnny. I'll give you that. But for a lot of us, we don't know who we are until we're attached to someone. We identify as someone's boyfriend or someone's girlfriend. And when we're not coupled up with someone, we really struggle with personhood. We don't really know who we are. And for some of you, the only reason you're at camp is because you're currently not coupled with anyone, and that's when you go back to church. Because you just starve for that next little pill, that next hit of dopamine, that next shot so that you can get through your existence. And I'm telling you, there's just a better way of identifying yourself. There's a deeper, truer, consistent way of doing that. And that's what we're talking about today. Where is your identity? What gives you value? What gives you purpose? Here's what Ecclesiastes chapter 2 says. Solomon's continuing on kind of his rant. Chapter 2, so it's big number 2. Verse 1 says this. I said to myself, Solomon is speaking, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. So Solomon says, that's it, I'm going to, I'm just going to indulge in everything. I'm going to bring the, the, every bit of richness from the four corners of the earth and I'm going to try it so I can find out what's actually good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness and what pleasure does it accomplish, right? Laughter is great for a few seconds. You ever met someone who... Um, something's funny and so they keep trying to do it and what happens after the second time they do it? It's the law of diminishing return, okay? Synaptogenetically in our brains, when you start to talk to people and they say something funny, you go, <laughs> the second time you're like, <laughs> and the third time you're like, <laughs> and the fourth time you're like, Reggie, shut your pie hole. No one likes it when you talk out loud. Stop saying words, okay? Then we call them annoying, right? I've got like five kids, this is my favorite. When one kid makes the other ones laugh and they keep doing it, you're always like, <sighs> right? Because this is how it works. But when I talk about the law of diminishing return, it's that way in every category of life. That's why for some of us, you, you are always in a relationship or you're always pushing the boundary on every bit of morality, you have to have a little bit more of this. You've got to, your substance abuse has to take a little bit more hold. You've got to drink a little bit more to get drunk. You have to smoke a little bit more to get high. You have to have a little bit more pleasure to experience sexual satisfaction. You have to do all these. You have to keep, why? Because your brain wasn't made for you to scour the earth and just trick your dopamine system into giving you hits of pleasure that were meant for true accomplishments. But the world is at your fingertips, and you can trick your brain into thinking that it should be rewarding itself for really trivial and menial things like drinking and doing drugs. You trick your brain. Your brain is neuroplastic. It can adjust and it can shift. Why do we have so many addicts in our culture? Because pleasure is at the ready. So as you keep ingesting dopamine and as you keep doing things that secrete dopamine, your brain has become basically this, this bottomless chasm that says, I need more if you want me to give you joy. Your brain receives dopamine in the dopamine receptors and then it triggers your brain to go, give you, give Sarah, give Rachel, give Benjamin a good feeling. And so many of us, we take different drugs and different uh, like. SSRIs and all these other things because it's really difficult to try to get our brain excited again or happy about anything. So, uh, uh, um, and, and the way that we go about that system over and over again is what Jesus is saying. It's not going to work for you to keep giving yourself more of that. You need to, Romans chapter 12 says, renew your mind. You need a new system that doesn't just come with you just keep doing whatever you need to do to give yourself that. But that's the, that's the call of this culture. You do you, queen. 
treat yourself, do all these things. It's literally, it, that's, that is literally a call for you to destroy yourself. Do whatever you want whenever. Treat yourself. You're most important. Give yourself whatever you need. We love it. It sounds so good. And whenever, like, someone gets up on stage and they're like, you need to think about yourself. We're always like, mm, preach. How's that working? This system doesn't work. When are we going to put it on trial and go, hey, Brenda, stop telling all of us to just treat ourselves all the time. And Jesus comes by and he says, the reason you're going to hate my message is he doesn't say to treat yourself or indulge yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself. He changes the whole system. And you wonder what's funny? People who choose to actually do that are the ones who come out of the, that, that kind of endless rat race that we talked about in this last night with the celebrities on the screen. You'll find people at the highest level of society making the most amount of money on planet Earth who do not feel that way because they found hope in Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say indulge yourself. He says deny yourself. He doesn't say you're the king. He says serve others. He flips a system on its head and wouldn't you know it, the creator who built your brain knows how it works. And he actually undermines every bit of our constantly nervous, constantly anxious brain by going, the reason you're so nervous and anxious all the time is because you've been taught that the way that you live life is to constantly think about you. You put yourself in the center of the universe, all creation worships you, and you're not a big enough God to be worshipped. And so the world has crushed you because you're, you're in the wrong place. You're in a place of being the position or the receiver of worship, but you're supposed to be the giver of worship. That's when you're going to go, oh, I'm home. Because that's what you were made for. You're the, that's what your podiumness means. That is where it comes from. That's what makes you a chair. You are a chair when you are doing what you were made to do, which is not to indulge self, but to deny self. That is what, the mankind, that's what mankind was made for. And you might go, not me, man. I'm an indulger. Great. How's it working? And why will you find people in foreign countries who have no money, who have no prospects, who have no future education? But here's an interaction that we're going to see here in, in Mark chapter 10 that I think plays this out really well. We're going to conclude with this. After Solomon says, everything is meaningless, here's what he says. I denied myself nothing. I refused any pleasure that I wanted, verse 10. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was the reward for all my toil, nothingness. So when I surveyed everything my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. It was like chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Where we're going to find ourselves in Mark chapter 10 is there's a rich man who I think is, he's, it's kind of indicative of Solomon and for a lot of us, that interacts with Jesus. And as he interacts with him, Jesus has a very different calling. And this is kind of the one that I think he's giving to all of us today. So we'll wrap up with this. Uh, Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse uh, 17. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. Jesus is interacting with what the scriptures call the rich young ruler. Okay? So really, in our day and age, it's still the same thing. If I gave you the choice in terms of um, you wanting to have the greatest expression of pleasure... And I said, you have a choice between a rich man and a young man. You'd choose to be a young man. If I said you're going to be a uh, rich man or a poor man, you'd be a rich man. And if I said, well, you're going to be a powerful man or a weak man, you'd be a powerful man. So this guy had everything in their culture, which still transit today, about what it means to be on top of the world. And here's what it says. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to be saved? How do I get to heaven? 
Jesus says, did you mean to call me good? So that word there in the Greek is perfect. So the rich young ruler calls Jesus God, the God teacher, the perfect teacher. So Jesus says, hold up, hold up. Let's get one thing clear. Am I your God or am I just some other good teacher? Did you mean to say that I'm the God? Why? Because if I'm God, then what I say goes. If I'm just a good teacher, then you might just consider what I say. So he's trying to level with him. Verse 20, uh, after Jesus says, if you want to go to heaven, you must be perfect. So Jesus says, what are the commandments? He's quoting the Ten Commandments. Um, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven images. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not lust. Do not murder. Do not do all these things. Be perfect. So the rich young ruler says, how do I get to heaven? To which Jesus says, easy, never commit sin. Well, that's a problem because the rich young ruler, the Bible tells us that we're actually born into sin. So you might not consider yourself a bad person, but based on a biblical standard, how many of you are sinners? Your hand's either up or you're a liar or you're asleep. That's, and you might go, you can't say that. My mom thinks I'm a good person. The problem is your mom also needs saving. Do you recognize that? She's also, biblically speaking, not a good person. And the, the quicker we can get to that conclusion to recognize that goodness, we like the sliding scale of it, right? You might think you, you're good at basketball. And you might be good at basketball. You might be the best one at this whole camp in basketball. And you'd be good. But if I put you at the Lakers home game tomorrow night and you were on the court, you'd be really, really bad. Everyone would go, like, you, ever, you ever like watch NFL quarterbacks and you're like doing your NFL draft? You're like, that guy sucks. You're like, well, he sucks in terms of he's in the top 15 best quarterbacks on planet Earth, right? So it's all that sliding scale. So when you talk about goodness, the idea is the scripture says, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 6, we have all, we're all sinful. We all need salvation. So how do I get to heaven? Jesus says, easy, be perfect. And then... In his pride, the rich young ruler says, check, what else? And what I mean by that is the rich young ruler seems to look back at Jesus, and he seems to make all the same arguments that we make today. If I were to ask you, are you a good person? If I were to ask you, are you a sinner? If I were to ask you, how is your relationship with God? If I were to ask you, what does God think about you? We would have this sliding scale. And I want to introduce to you an idea right now that we're going to conclude with, that we're going to pick up on tonight. But, th but just get this. In the kingdom of God, humans are in only one of two positions. So you have to have an answer to this question. This is the one that I want you to answer as you're going back to your cabins today. Who are you to God? And you can't go, I'm a butterfly. It, there's not a lot of answers. There's only two. The Bible makes it very clear. There are children of God. And there are enemies of God. And our culture loves the idea that you can be in some case this like gray malaise and this gray unspoken, difficult to navigate position with God. That if I asked you, what is your relationship to God? Here's what I want you to answer. Because this is about, the Bible only gives you two options. There's no Switzerland. There's no third parties here. There's no independent group. There's one or the other. The Bible insinuates a time and time again, you are either a child of God or you are an active enemy against God. You're not going to want to say that, but I've already told you, I'm going to give this to you honestly. If you can find a third category in here, I'd love to hear it. If you can find a third position in the scriptures where God either doesn't call someone daughter and son and welcome them into his kingdom, 
or say you're an enemy opposed to you. This is what Romans says, Romans chapter 5. While we were still God's enemies, he died for us. But if we don't surrender and turn ourselves over to him to become his children, we remain his enemies. Our cultural idea is this. There are the religious elite. You take what God says seriously. You're really about it. Then there's like militant atheists who like, we hate God and you guys burn crosses. And then there's this whole area of in-between. And this is where most of us in this room find ourselves. And Satan loves the fact that we've created a third category where we all, we're kind of unsure what's going on. We know that there's a God out there. We're not quite sure what he wants from me, but we liken ourselves a fairly good person. We're definitely not like the Hitlers and the militant atheist people over there. We're not people who actually follow Jesus on a normal basis. We don't take this thing super seriously, but I think God's going to be cool with us. Now, if I were to tell you there's only two positions and you have to choose one, one is you follow God with everything that you have or you're an enemy of him, and I said you have to choose between the two of them, would you have the honesty to say, if you find yourself in that middle position, that you have fully surrendered every part of your life over to God because if you haven't, you don't belong in this category. The Bible invites you to recognize in a loving sense to say you are an enemy of God and you need to do something about this. There is no middle, there is no gray, there is no third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh category. There are only two. And Jesus makes it really clear. Well then how am I gonna be saved? Jesus says, easy, you have to be perfect, sinless. You must have never have had an evil thought, never have lusted after someone, never have ever been angry unrighteously. You can't even have been born human because humans are born into sin. Got it? To which every heart should go, wait a minute, if the mandate of heaven is I have to be perfect and no one is perfect but God, then aren't we all enemies of God? How could anyone expect, why would you even have Hume Lake? It's just a big camp where everyone comes and finds out they're going to hell. How is this helpful? I didn't sign up for this. I don't understand this. The good news of the gospel starts with really bad news. Only the perfect are saved. Only the perfect will inherit the kingdom. And if you can see me and hear me right now, you are not part of the perfect. By our nature, we have sinned against God. So what do we do when the guest list to heaven is only perfect people? And you and I both know in our hearts, we all belong over here. If I can just tell you, I can go through the 37 passages to convince you, or you can just take my word for it. There is not a third category of humans. There are those who Romans 1 says worship the creator and those who worship created things. There are those who he calls sons and daughters and those who he calls enemies. There are the alive and there are the dead. And if I were to press you and have you answer honestly, would you be able to say that you're a child of God if in fact your life is not representative of that? And if it's not representative of that, would you be bold and honest enough to recognize that your current position towards the God of holiness, the most perfect God in the universe who is just and wrathful and loving and kind and all those things in one, that currently your position to him is you are his enemy. But the gospel is simply this, how God made a way for enemies to become children. And that'll be our whole conversation tonight. And I want you to walk away with that simple question. Who am I in relationship to God? You only have one of two answers, from A or B. Are you a child of God or are you an enemy of God? I want you to reflect on that as we go into this time of worship and talk about the holiness of God.
you pray with me? God, your, your holiness, it says day and night, night and day, the angels surround the throne and cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Set apart, different, your love is bigger than ours, your, your mercy is truer than ours, your, your wrath is more perfect than ours, your justice is, is more true than ours. And yet sometimes we can go about our life just thinking that we're gonna be good because we haven't taken an offensive position against you, but your scripture seems to come back and say you absolutely have. We don't want to grade on our, school, our scale of goodness because you are a perfect and a holy God. That word holy, you are set apart, different, greater than, separated from us. And we need you to have made a way for us to get to you or better yet, for you to get to us. God, we cry out holiness in this moment and we declare that we are beast, we are creature, we are mortal and broken and sinful, enemies of you. And we need you to intervene if we are gonna have any help because we can't be perfect. We can't be righteous on our own. We need someone else to take us and bridge the chasm from death to life. And we await your gospel this evening to find out how what your plan is to make dead people like me alive again. Pray this in your name.